Well, this morning we are continuing our series, Unread Letters. Thanks, Tom and Graceland, again for that. We thought we'd show that just one more time, just because it's so good. Um, it's fantastic. We are in week two of a series called Unread Letters, and uh, we are looking at seven letters in Revelation that Jesus writes to his church, to the church. Uh, these seven letters were written to seven real places, real towns that are still being es- excavated and, and discovered today, uh, which had real people in these churches, uh, and Jesus was writing things to them. And he wrote seven letters to seven churches, um, and we can be confident that these letters are not only to the church that he originally wrote them to, but they are to us as well this morning. They are us to us as a church because seven represents completeness, wholeness. And so Jesus writes to the, to the whole church. And so this morning we are continuing and going to look at um, the letter to Smyrna. Or as someone suggested, I pronounce it Smyrna this morning, but Smyrna. Um, and last week we looked at the church in Ephesus. And uh, we really set up the idea that Revelation was written by John, who got a revelation, a vision, um, to help us see Jesus. I mean, there's so much in Revelation. There's so much that, that John saw, but primarily the revelation is really outlined in the first couple of verses of Revelation 1. It's about Jesus. It's that we would see Jesus. And we talked about this idea that seeing is becoming, not just believing, not seeing is believing, but seeing is becoming. And Paul, Paul wrote in Corinthians that as we behold the glory of Jesus, we become transformed. We become more like him. And so as we see Jesus, as we behold him, as we fix our attention on him in the way he would want us to, that will change us. That will change our hearts. That will change our desires. That will change our actions. And so Paul writes to Ephesians, um, the importance of loving Jesus, the importance of love um, over doing the right things. And so Ephesians were doing some great things um, in, in God's name, but uh, John writes, you've forgotten your first love. You've forgotten to love like you used to love. And so the most important thing you can do is love. And Jesus wants your heart. He doesn't want your behaviours. He doesn't want what you can do for him, but he really wants your heart. He really wants your heart. Uh, so the encouragement was, turn around, come back. If your heart is not in the walk that you have with Jesus right now, if your heart is not where it's supposed to be, the hope is that there is a chance for you to turn around and come back. That it's not all gone, it's not all, all lost, it's not, there's, no, there's not no hope, uh, but there is hope. And so you can turn around, there is always hope, even when your heart says otherwise. So this morning, if you've got your Bibles, turn them to Revelation 2, and we're going to read verses 8 to 11. A short letter, three verses. Wouldn't you like to receive short letters like this? It's great, isn't it? If only in school I said, all you have to write is three verses for your assignment. 40 words, that'll do. All right, that's probably more than 40. Revelation 2, 8 to 11, have you got it? Cool, it says this, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, Right, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
Do not be afraid about... Uh, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I'll give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are first and last, that you are victorious, that you're sitting on the throne, and God, we will not be hurt by the second death. And God, we pray this morning that these words would um, come alive to us. God, that we would uh, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That we would hear your voice and we would respond accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Hands up if you've ever done a marathon. I'm, putting my, I'm not putting my, anybody? I'm sorry. I was going to say, if there was anybody that has run a marathon, best to steer clear of them for advice because I like, don't understand the idea of running a marathon. I, I'm pretty sure that's why God created cars. <laughs> I've run a few times in my life. I've, I've done some running. Um, I max out at about 5Ks when I was really good. Uh, right now, I'd probably max out at about 50 metres. Uh, I, started playing, I started basketball, playing basketball again uh, this week. And whew, I mean, the court is not very big, but when you haven't run for a while, the other end of the court looks like a marathon away. Uh, it's a big run. Um, and so I'm not a marathon runner, but what I've heard and what I've uh, read about marathon runners and running marathons is that there's a point at which you get to in a marathon, um, however many Ks in, where you hit a wall, where you sort of hit this uh, mental, uh, physical barrier that says, you best give up now, you best stop. Um, your body's not made for this, you shouldn't keep going, this is too hard, call it quits, give in, and take a rest, take a break, come back and do the rest later. You know, your body will say all these sorts of things, and, and the ones who uh, persevere and get through that mental barrier are the ones that do really well at running a marathon. In fact, someone just ran a marathon in under two hours this week, which I mean, my car could do it in under 20 minutes, I reckon. Again, I'm just saying... I was even reading this week that he had special shoes and they're saying that his shoes were like helping him run faster. Anyway, uh, if you can run 40Ks, it doesn't matter how long it takes you, if you can run that long in one go without stopping, you deserve um, great things, very good things. But um, in the midst of that, that moment when that barrier hits you, um, what you need to do as a marathon runner is, is push through. And in the same way, when we face opposition, when we, say, when we face suffering, when we face things that come against us in life that would say, you know what, it's best that you just walk away from faith, it's best that you just give up on this, that you uh, lose hope on that situation, Jesus would say to you, push through. Push through. There is going to be pain, there is going to be suffering, there is going to be moments in life where there is a wall, where mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, it seems like the, the best option is to give up give in, stop trying, give up faith and just do something else, pursue something else, let it overwhelm you, whatever it is the situation is, but just give up. And, and I want to encourage us this morning with this idea that we can flood this fear, we can flood this idea of suffering with faith and, and that's what Jesus implores and encourages Smyrna to do, to flood their fear, whatever they're going to face, with faith. 
So Jesus writes this letter to Smyrna. Smyrna is a, is a powerful and rich city. It's about half the size of Ephesus, 150 or so thousand people living in Smyrna at this time. Um, it's known for its location. It's known for its relationship with Rome. It's known for its influence. There's um, stacks of Jews that live there, but it's a mixture of religion. Again, like Ephesus, very similar to Ephesus in that there's a lot of pagan religions and um, and the, the encouragement or the, the culture was that you should follow all, all gods, lowercase g, all, all religions, because they are all good for you and they will help you uh, succeed or be good in life. Uh, but perhaps uh, Smyrna was most well known for its emperor worship. They would actually um, worship Caesar as Lord, not just past Caesars, not just ones that had died, but the current Caesar. Once a year they would come and burn incense and they would declare Caesar is Lord. And of course, Christians would not do any of that. They would not bow down, they would not worship, and they would only worship Jesus. And so, uh, in light of that, they were persecuted. They, were, um, they faced suffering, they faced uh, loss of jobs, loss of income, they were excommunicated from families, they, they really struggled. And so, this letter is written in that context. And so, let's have a look at this letter a little bit more in depth. We're going to start with verse 8. It says, to the angel of the Lord, um, or to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, these are the words of him who is first and last, who died and came to life again. We've got someone who comes, wants to come read the scripture for us. So each letter begins this way. Each letter begins this way with uh, uh, this picture of Jesus this picture of who Jesus is. And, and like last week, the, the real encouragement is that we would see who Jesus is. That Jesus reveals something of himself that is actually going to help those that hear these words, those that need to hear these words. Whether it's an encouraging letter, whether it's a challenging letter, or whether it's a mixture of both, the best way to position yourself to be who Jesus wants you to be is to cast your eyes upon him. Seeing is becoming. And so Jesus reveals himself in, in two main ways here. He says, I am the first and the last. I am the first and the last. And we're just singing about this idea that Jesus is forever. Jesus has always been and he always will be. He is first and last. He is outside and bigger than anything we could ever imagine or comprehend. He is uh, going to outlast any of us and he has created us before we were even um, ever in existence. He created us. He, he is the beginning and he is the end. He is the Alpha, the Omega. He is the first and the last. So he is completely and utterly powerful. And one of the things we talked about in Revelation 1 was this picture of Jesus as a powerful king. Yes, he is um, gracious. He is merciful, but he is powerful. He is creator. He speaks and things change. He says, let there be light and boom, there is light. There is power in Jesus, and so we need a bigger picture of this Jesus. And, and part of this idea of first and last is that Jesus is powerful. But at the same time, he says, I'm first and last. And then what does he say? He says, I died and I came to life. So I am completely powerful, yet I came to earth and I died as a man. I died as a human. I experienced life like you did. I died and then I came back to life. So I'm incredibly powerful, yet I'm incredibly personal. So Jesus is powerful and personal. And this is a great picture for us to hold of Jesus, that he is powerful but personal. 
You know, we know plenty of powerful people in our world and we see them in the news sometimes or maybe we know them personally. Um, but sometimes powerful people can just be that. They've just got power. They just make decisions. But Jesus has the, the power and the authority, but he comes into each and every one of our lives as a personal Lord, a personal King, and guides us through whatever we need guiding through. He knows your suffering like you could never imagine. Our Jesus is powerful and personal. So he knows you. He sees you. He loves you. He goes on to write, I know your afflictions in verse 9 and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. And so Smyrna was really facing a whole lot of persecution. And for us, this verse and this particular idea of persecution, we can't really relate to because we don't face persecution. We don't face persecution in Australia. We definitely don't face persecution in Sale. Um, so this idea of, of being persecuted uh, doesn't really resonate with us. But there are still hundreds of thousands of Christians that are being persecuted today. You try to be a Christian in Syria or Somalia or, or these different countries around the world, and it is hard to be a Christian. In fact, you will still be killed if you're a Christian. Hundreds of people are dying every year for professing their faith in Jesus. And so we don't know persecution. We might know harassment in our world. We might know sort of this idea of that we're called names or that um, people won't talk to us the same way as they'll talk to other people, but it's not persecution the way that Smyrna was facing persecution. Smyrna knew persecution. They would not employment. They were ridiculed. You know, they were called things like cannibals because they shared in the Lord's Supper. They thought, well, you're eating Jesus' body and his blood, and so you must be cannibals. They were called family haters because they called each other brother and sister. So they thought, you're saying you hate your family and you'd rather call them brother, them sister. All these ideas um, were put against them. They were even called atheists in this day and age. Like, they were called atheists because they followed one God instead of all the gods. And so it's like, well, you don't really believe in gods. You believe in one God, so you're... You're pretty much an atheist. I mean, you're one God away from being an atheist. I don't know really what their logic was, but um, but many people were killed because of their faith as well in Smyrna. Still today, hundreds of people are killed around the world for following Jesus. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we living with such conviction? Are we living with such uh, conviction as to have people ridicule us, harass us, or do we just play it safe? Because I'm sure it would have been easy for those in Smyrna to say, well, let's just sort of like water down our message a bit. Let's just water down our values. Let's just water down our convictions a bit so that we blend in a bit, so that we die less. Let's just, I mean, it's really, it's really justifiable to do that. I mean, if you were in that day and age, it would have been far, so easy to justify. It would have been so easy for a, a preacher to get up and justify, you know, let's just... Let's just be a bit more secretive. Let's just pretend like, you know, let's say Caesar was Lord, but just like have our fingers crossed behind our back. You know, let's just pretend a little bit and so that we blend in so that we don't die. But they said, no, we're not doing that. We have such conviction in our heart of who Jesus is and what he's done in our life that we are willing to face whatever uh, we need to face for the glory of Jesus, for his purpose. And so... We need to ask ourselves, do we live with that same conviction that whenever things come against us, are we quick to compromise a value, quick to compromise a belief, or do we hold on and say, you know what, you can call me whatever you want, you can do whatever you like, you can harass me however you want, I'm not 
I'm not walking away from this conviction. I'm going to walk towards Jesus all again. And so they suffered persecution and harassment. In verse 10, it goes on and says, Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. So not only are you facing persecution, not only are you facing suffering, but there's more to come. A great promise, a great encouragement. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in, in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as a victor's crown. One of the things I find um, that I'm saying to my um, boys very often, like regularly throughout the day, is just a minute, just a minute, just a minute. Like when um, Harrison's saying, come play with me, Dad, or um, stop tickling me, Dad, or whatever it is that he's saying, I'm just like, just a minute, just a minute, or um, I'm hungry, Dad. All right, dinner will be ready in five minutes. He's like, five minutes? Five, like, it's like, that is the worst thing you could ever say, five minutes. Or I remember one time I was saying to him recently, you know what, uh, I'm going to play with you for 10 more minutes. Oh, 10 minutes, Dad, can you play with me for five more minutes? It's like, okay. <laughs> just love the, the innocence of, oh, and, you know, he's turning four soon and he knows that when he turns four he's going to kinder. And so he's like, oh, you know how it's my party soon, Dad? I don't want to go to kinder today. I'm like, well, one, your party's not today and your birthday's not yet. And, like, it's not the moment you turn four you go to kinder. It's like, I'm trying to explain to him next year. It's a long time away still. Um, but he couldn't comprehend that. And I, just, I just love the, the innocence of a child who doesn't comprehend time like we do. And you know, when it comes to time and, and Jesus, I reckon we're in the same boat. That he says, you know what, it's just a minute. You know this phrase in this verse that says, just for 10 days, is, is like a saying in that culture in that time. Like we would say, just a minute. And we don't mean literally one minute. We mean just a short amount of time. And so in the same way, uh, just for 10 days was just like a saying, uh, a lot of scholars believe, of just, it's just a short amount of time. It's not literally 10 days, it's just a short time. In the scheme of eternity, 10 days is nothing. And so I think we've got the same warped perception of time as maybe a little child has sometimes. And we see 10 more years of this, 80 years on this earth, oh my gosh. And Jesus is saying, it's just a minute. It's just a minute, like five minutes will be over like that. Your life will be over like that. Your life has not even begun. In the scheme of eternity, it's just like, it's nothing. And what he hopes to do and what he hopes to encourage us in is lift your eyes. It's just for a minute. Whatever it is that you're facing, whatever suffering you might be going through, whatever suffering there might be would not last forever for those who belong to Jesus. And in fact, in Jesus, you can be at your best even when life is at its worst. In Jesus, you can be at your best even when life is at its worst. When life is hopeless, we can be filled with hope. This is the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is like an upside-down kingdom. That hopeless people are filled with hope. That the last are first. That the weak are strong. That those who die to self have life. So whatever it is that you're going through, whatever suffering, whatever trial, whatever um, pain that you might be facing right now, Jesus would say, I believe this to you, just for 10 days, just a minute. There's more coming, but it's, it's just for a minute. Lift your eyes again. See Jesus. See if there can be hope in the most hopeless situation. See if you can experience joy in the most joyless situation. 
Because your life is not just about your surrounding circumstance. There is so much more than what you can see. There is so much more to come than what you can comprehend. I mean, even Jesus in verse 8, he says, I died and came to life again. I died and came to life again. I'm living proof that there is hope in a hopeless situation. I mean, it doesn't get much more hopeless than dead. And Jesus says, I died, but I came to life. Even in the most hopeless situation, there is hope. There is reason for hope when your circumstance says otherwise. You know, there's a verse in Ephesians 3, verse 20, and it says this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. And in the context of Ephesians 3, in the context of this letter that's written to Ephesians, but it's probably actually written to a group of churches, including, probably Smyrna is included in this, in this letter that Paul originally wrote to, He's saying, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of what you're going through, he writes this, God is able to do immeasurably more than you could ever hope or imagine. Dream big. Lift your eyes. Don't let the surrounding circumstance dictate you your ability to dream, your ability to see what God could do. Fill your life with hope. In the midst of suffering, dream big. Flood your fear with faith. Flood your fear with faith. At the time of this letter um, being given to the church, there was a guy by the name of Polycarp. don't know if any of you have in children's room, great name, Polycarp. When I heard that name for the first time, I thought, I reckon the literal translation of that is Lake Guthridge, just like lots of carps. But it's not. Because um, obviously Lake Guthridge wasn't built then. Anyway, um, Maybe there was another lake with lots of cups. But Polycarp, he was a pastor or a bishop at Smyrna. So he was like the church leader at the time. And about this time was written, he's, I think the date's there, 69 to 156. And so if Revelation is written around, probably around 80 or 90 AD, um, he's likely the, the bishop at this time. And so he's been a Christian his whole life. He lived during the beginning of the church in the first century. And he lived with immense persecution. He lived with this constant barrage and threat of, of death, of imprisonment. He was pressured to worship Caesar as Lord. And, um, and it wasn't until he was 86 years old that the Roman soldiers uh, said, you know, we've we got to arrest this guy. His, his uh, ability to, to preach the gospel and not deny Jesus is too threatening to us. And he's not bowing down to Caesar. So we've got to arrest him, even in his old age, and we're going we're gonna to kill him. Uh, and so when they arrested him, they, they tried to convince him because he's such, I mean, you can read his story about how he doesn't flee, he doesn't try to run away. I mean, he, he eventually does sort of move out of town a little bit because his family and friends say, just, I mean, don't walk into prison, like at least stay a little bit away. So he, he does. But when they come to arrest him, he just says, you know what, you don't have to worry about putting handcuffs on me. I'm not going to resist you. In fact, I want to just go pray for an hour. And that hour turns into a couple of hours and he's praying while the soldiers are there waiting to take him to prison. Uh, and they're convicted in their hearts like, how can we kill this man? Like, he's, like there is nothing that he, we can see. But anyway, they're following orders from, from their king. So they do. Uh, and they try to persuade him, just, just say Caesar is Lord. That's all you have to do. That's all you have to do. He's like, I won't do it. 
He said, in fact, when they try to persuade him, he says this. He says, 86 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And then they started threatening him with like, we'll throw you to the lions, we'll throw you to the beasts. And he didn't mind, he wouldn't bow down to Caesar. In fact, he tried to and offered to explain the gospel to them. He said, you know what, I'm not going to, if you're so worried about this Christianity, how about I explain it to you? How about I tell you about Jesus? And, you know, he was being a bit sarcastic, I think, at the time. Uh, but then they sort of got a bit angry and they threatened to burn him alive. And he said this when they threatened to burn him at the stake. You threaten him with fire which burns for a little while and is soon extinguished. You do not know the coming fire of judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting for? Do as you wish. What a conviction in this man's heart to say that in the face of those who had all authority to burn him. You know what? You can threaten me with fire, but it's only going to last a minute. It's just a minute. You've got the thing to worry about. You've got something to worry about. Because your fire is going to last forever. So they decide to burn him at the stake. And as they go, legend has it, they go to nail him at the stake. And he says, don't worry about nailing me. I'm not going to run. I'm not going to go anywhere. Just tie my hands if you want. I'll stand here. I'll let it, I'll let it be done. So they bound his hands and he began to sing and praise God. And um, The flames come up, but they, apparently they wouldn't uh, engulf him or, or burn him and they kept going out and they kept going out and eventually the executioner just got his sword and, and stabbed Polycarp and he died. And his witness has been remembered. His testimony, his faith has been remembered. Death was not the end for Polycarp. It was just the beginning. And I'm sure... There, were, there was fear in Polycarp's heart and his mind in those moments. I'm sure it wasn't just a, like, you know, we read a story like that and go, man, he must be, like, crazy or that's unheard of or I could never do that, you know. He almost seems superhuman. But I'm sure there was real fear or moments of fear in his heart and his life. But there was something far greater in his life, something far greater in his heart than fear. And I, I think that was faith. And he flooded his faith with fear. What comes out of you when you face suffering? When, when there is something that comes right against you, what's, what comes out? Fear or faith? Fear or faith? You know the word Smyrna, the town Smyrna, actually, it's, it means myrrh, um, which is like the, the incense, the fragrance. And myrrh is... It comes as uh, when you squeeze or, or extract the gum out of a tree. It's like when it's squeezed and pressured, myrrh comes out. This sweet incense comes out. What comes out when you're squeezed? When the pressure comes against you, what comes out? Is it the sweet incense of faith, of trusting Jesus, of looking to him? Or is it something else? Flood your faith with fear. I was reminded this week of, um, as I was um, thinking about this, I was reminded of Joshua. And you know, Joshua was called to live with faith in the midst of fear. He was called to live with courage. And in Joshua 9, really well-known scripture, it says, Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Don't be afraid. These words echo what Revelation says, where it says, Stop being afraid. Do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Be very strong and very courageous. 
Don't be afraid. Instead, be courageous. Instead, be full of faith. And, you know, as I was thinking about this, I I thought we can only be courageous when there's something that requires courage. We can only be courageous when there's something that requires courage. It doesn't take courage to keep living a comfortable life. That's not courage. It doesn't take courage to keep doing the same things that you're doing that don't have any risk to them, that don't have any sense of, oh, this is a bit, I'm doing this a little bit afraid. If you're not doing and living for Jesus in a way that that causes you a bit of, I need some courage to do this. I need some strength to do this. This verse doesn't really apply to us, or this idea doesn't really apply to us, because we're not afraid. And I think the challenge for us, especially in our Western world and Australian Christianity, is to live with conviction, with a, a faith that requires courage. To live in a way and speak in a way and love in a way that requires courage, that is countercultural, that says, you know what, I really feel like I need to pray for my, my work colleague and, and go and say that to them and, and ask them what's going on for them. But I'm a bit scared to do that. I'm a bit scared, so I won't. I'll just, I'll just pray for them and it still counts because God doesn't need me to tell them that I'm praying for them. You know, That's true. But sometimes the Holy Spirit's prompting us to do things calling us to live in a way, calling us to share our faith in a way that requires courage. Requires courage. Do we live in a way that requires courage? Our courage comes by faith as we look ahead to the promise of God, to the hope that he gives, and say, you know what, I'm, I'm chasing after whatever God has for me. Jesus finishes his letter to Smyrna with this verse. He says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And this is the great hope that we all hang on to. Heaven is coming. That whatever comes your way, whatever suffering you might face, whatever persecution, whatever harassment, whatever fear you might face, when you fill your life with faith and with a vision of Jesus, you know heaven is coming. And it will enable you to live however God wants you to live. It will enable you to say and to speak and to love the way Jesus wants you to love. Because you know heaven is around the corner. And heaven is coming for those who trust in Jesus. And so this morning I want us to hang on to this great hope again. That heaven is coming. That whatever it is we're facing, flood it with faith. Like a marathon runner. Keep going. Pursue Jesus. It's just for a minute. It's just for a minute. Hope is around the corner. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for your encouragement in these verses. God, that we can face whatever is coming our way with faith. That we can flood our fear with faith. And Jesus, we thank you for those that have given us the ultimate example of what it is to trust you and and live in a way that that causes them to die for your name. And God, we pray that we would see these martyrs and we would see the faith that they have and, and be encouraged to pursue you in the same way. To live with such conviction that all we care about is you, is your purpose, is your way. And Jesus, this morning I pray for those that are in the midst of their own trial, their own suffering, their own pain. That the wall is up in front of them and 
God, I pray this morning that they would hear what the Spirit says. They would hear your voice this morning. Keep going. Take another step. Look again to Jesus. He's the one that's overcome. It's just for a minute. You can have hope in the most hopeless situation. And so, Holy Spirit, we surrender our hearts to you. We ask that you would do what only you could do. God, we love you. We honor you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.